Hey, it's great to be with you today. Uh, happy Father's Day. Uh, I do want to recognize that, that this can be a hard time for, for some um, who've lost their dads or maybe you just had a, a bad dad, uh, absentee dad, or, or maybe you weren't able to be a dad, and we want to recognize that. But we also want to be sensitive to these realities, but also encourage uh, the dads in the room today to keep pursuing Jesus and, and keep investing your lives in, in your children. So before we get started today, I just wanna, I wanna pray for us. Uh, Father, uh, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you that we can call you Father. Lord, thank you uh, just for your faithfulness uh, to us. And Lord, how you call us your children. Lord, we just are, are so grateful uh, to be a part of your family. And Lord, I, I just pray for the dads today that, uh, Lord, you would help them to continue to pursue Jesus, to live with integrity, to, uh, to, walk, uh, to walk with Jesus. And Lord, for, for those who may be struggling today, that you would just strengthen them, uh, give them comfort uh, through this day. Um, but Lord, we just give it all to you. And uh, thank you for the privilege and opportunity uh, to come to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in honor of Father's Day, I, I thought I would uh, give you a few dad jokes to get us in the swing of things. So uh, are you ready for this? Uh, probably not. Uh, but here we go. Uh, why did the fig take the prune to the prom? Because he couldn't find a date. Where did the pirate uh, find his hook? Well, he found it at the secondhand store. What's the best part about living in Switzerland? I really don't know, but the, the flag's a big plus. Uh, at what time of day was, was Adam created? Well, it was just a little before Eve. Uh, do you need an ark? I know a guy. <laughs> so there you go. It, it, might, it might be a little hard to uh, recover after those, but uh, um, this past spring, I had the privilege uh, with my two boys uh, to take a backpacking trip down into the Everglades. It was probably one of the hardest trips we've taken, but one of the most rewarding. Uh, it was so beautiful. Uh, one day, we had the opportunity to the kayak across Florida Bay to a remote beach and about four and a half miles uh, camped for the night. It was absolutely beautiful, stunning to sit by the fire, listening to the waves at our back as we, as we watched the sun go down over the marsh. Uh, it was unforgettable. But during the night, um, the wind picked up and the waves got a little bigger and, and I panicked a little bit that night. But uh, when we got up in the morning, um, the waves were about one and a half foot waves and uh, we were paddling into a constant 15 mile an hour wind in our face. And so I'm in my little single kayak, the boys are in a, in a tandem, and, and, and you just had to keep paddling, you had to keep going. As soon as you stopped, the, the wind would start to blow you backwards. And so at one point I'm, I'm paddling, and I'm, I was like, man, I don't feel like I'm getting any closer to that island. And I, I looked to the shore and there was a bush and I, so I paddled and paddled and, and the bush was still there and I paddled some more. It was still there. I was making no headway. Uh, we did eventually make it back to the marina. It took about three and a half hours of just constant paddling. Um, and we were absolutely exhausted. 
But the reason I tell that story is, you, have you ever had to, to walk into a strong wind or, or maybe even swim against a current? It's hard work. It's tough. It, it can be exhausting. And I feel in, in some ways that's what Paul felt as he faced this opposition in Thessal- Thessalonica. He had to escape in the night. And now he's facing criticism that he's abandoned them and, and he didn't really care about them. In the meantime, these new believers are, are trying to learn how to move forward without Paul's help in a world that was moving, that was rushing against them. So the new church in Thessalonica is an example of faithful believers moving forward in a backward world. In the passage before us today, Paul gives again, uh, again gives Thanks for these believers and the work that God is doing in their lives. If you'd like, you can grab your Bible or your device and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, it will also be here on the screen. Now, shortly after getting kicked out of town for pointing people to Jesus, Paul writes this letter uh, to the church in Thessalonica to, to defend his team's ministry and, and to encourage them to, to keep moving forward. And so we learned in chapter 1, Paul commends their work, their labor, endurance, as they're driven by faith and love and hope. And as a result, uh, their story of turning from idols to Jesus was, was making Jesus make sense far beyond their own city. Last week, Pastor Aiden guided us through how Paul defends his actions, and he gave us a picture of what it means to, to influence and, and disciple others. And now Paul picks up where he left off in chapter 1, verse 2, when he said, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in in our prayers. And he he picks up where he left off there and he continues in an attitude and a prayer of thankfulness for the fact that these young followers of Jesus were hanging tough, were hanging tough in difficult situations. And it gives us some of the ways that we're able to to keep working while waiting. And so we come to chapter 2, verse 13, and it says this, And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God. The point is the word of God within us can be trusted to work for us. Because listen, how did they welcome the message? Not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God. And I just want to pause right here for a moment because I think this issue can trip a lot of people up. There are many books today that that claim to be the word of God. The Quran, the, the Islam holy book, claims to be the word of God. The Book of Mormon claims to be the Word of God. The the Hindus believe the the Bhagavad Gita is the the source of eternal truth. Karl Marx claimed his writings, the the Communist Manifesto, was the ultimate truth. So what we understand about the Bible matters. Because if it's just the teachings and beliefs of, of human authors... Instead of reading our Bibles, we, we might as all bring our copy of the classic tales of Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> so today, for a short time, I, I want to reinforce the idea that the Bible is the word of God written down for us to know him. With the Bible facing such great opposition today and with many other works claiming to be the word of God, how do we know that the Bible is truly the word of God? 
Well, there's been books written on this. Uh, I just want to cover this briefly with some internal and, and external evidence. Uh, internal evidence is that which is found within the Bible itself. External evidence is evidence outside the Bible, such as archaeology and history and science and philosophy and, and ancient manuscripts. So as we look at the, the internal evidence, for those who already believe the Bible is not man-made but God-inspired, we read 2 Timothy 3.16. It says it outright, all scripture is inspired by God, is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. In other words, it comes from God. It's authored by God. It's not just the musing and thoughts of some ancient men. The Bible is God-breathed. He is the very life force of scripture. But you think, well, well, how does that work? Because we know that there were men who actually wrote down the words of the Bible. In fact, 1 Thessalonians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. So how can I say it's, it's the word of God if Paul physically wrote it down? When we come to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, it says this, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, here's what's so cool about God's Word, and you may have heard this before. It was written by over 40 different authors from all walks of life, shepherds, farmers, fishermen, kings, priests, philosophers, over a period of 1,500 years, written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, written during times of exile, famine, war, as well as times of peace, and yet it tells one unified story. If I, if I were to hand everyone uh, the same blank piece of paper, the same pen, we're all in the same room, given the same amount of time to write, and I said, hey, I want you to take the next half hour to write an essay on drinking Starbucks coffee. <laughs> you know, as, as I would get those back and read those, would we all be on the same page? Not at all. And that's just one subject written in the same language at the same time in the same culture written on the same piece of paper. So how is it that we have such a unified message in the Bible? It covers hundreds of topics, yet it, it doesn't contradict itself. It's united in the theme of God's redemption of humanity and creation. And it's like, how is it possible that it can be so unified? The answer is it has one author. It's God's words. He is the author. Peter says that the prophets spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God drove these men along like a wind filling the sail of a ship as these men wrote in their own styles and personalities and perspective. That's some of the internal evidence. It's just amazing. Uh, external evidence has to do with evidence that lies outside of what the Bible says about itself. You see, though the Bible is one of the most well-known books in the history of the world, no book has been attacked more. 
Its authority is questioned, its history is distrusted, its relevance suspected, its, its truth doubted, and yet it's proved itself again and again and again. Places, cities, people, events recorded in the Bible have continually been put to the test to, only to be verified again by, by historians and archaeologists. Yeah, for example, skeptics thought the, the history of the falling walls of Jericho, well, that's just a myth. Until archaeologists made a discovery in the 1930s that revealed that the walls had fallen down and they had actually fallen outward exactly around the time that the Bible records it happening. And there's so many stories like this that, that support the historicity and the accuracy of, of the Bible. But just one more that a little bit of fulfillment of prophecy is seen in the destruction of the city of Tyre. We find in, in the prophet Ezekiel uh, chapter 26, he, he gives this prophecy. And he says, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you, like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down your towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out in the sea, she will become a place to spread fishnets, for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. She will become plunder for the nations, and her settlements on the mainland will be ravaged by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I think this is absolutely fascinating. The first time I heard this, and we looked at a map, and you can actually see where this happened. Tyre was, uh, was made up of two parts. It had a main port city as well as a, an island city about half a mile out from the shore. Ezekiel prophesies that Tyre will, will be destroyed by many nations, the debris of the conquered city thrown into the sea. The city would be abandoned and, 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 and the rubble scraped from the surface and fishermen would dry their nets on the ruins. And you read that, and it's like, wow, that's, that's pretty specific. Like, so how did that all happen? Well, here's what happened. I think, again, I think this is just amazing. In 537 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, or we can remember him from our series in Daniel, he took up a siege of the city, of the mainland city, for 13 years. And he finally was able to destroy it. He destroyed it completely. But while Nebuchadnezzar was destroying the mainland city, the people, they simply, they fled that city and, and they went to the island. And they, they developed a city there that <clears throat> was a powerful city until about 200 years later, Alexander the Great came along and he laid siege as well. Well, he couldn't get to these islanders because their defenses were so good. So he uses the rubble from the destroyed inland city, scraping the foundations clean to build a causeway to the island city of Tyre. I can't, I can't even imagine seeing this. But when the causeway is complete, he, he simply marches to the island and he destroys the city. Today, the power and influence of the city of Tyre lies buried in ruins. And, and where it once existed in all its power is, is now a small fishing village. In fact, even today, you can find fishermen drying their nets on these ruins. I, I don't know about you, but <laughs> that's pretty amazing. 
And over and over again, the Bible has proved itself to be no ordinary book because it is the word of God. Not just the the musings or opinions of a bunch of ancient philosophers. And that's exactly how these new believers in, in Thessalonica accepted it. They, when you accept these words as God's word, it changes the way you listen to it. It changes the way that you respond to it. Paul describes how they heard the word of God by receiving it and then accepting it. They received it listening intently because they knew that these were words from God. And it says they accepted it. In other words, they welcomed it and allowed it into their lives. That's why the, 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 the debate over the nature of the Bible is so crucial. I mean, I, I remember writing papers in college, and sometimes we'd have to turn in the rough draft, and, and we would get it back the next week with all the corrections and suggestions, and, and sometimes it would change the whole direction of the paper. You know, if the scriptures are only the words from someone's mind, then they can be edited. They can be changeable, fickle, unreliable. But if the Bible is truly the word of God, then it's utterly and completely authoritative. If God has spoken in the Bible, then what he says has a final claim in my life. But you see, mankind has always been tempted to redefine and edit and and reinterpret the clear word of God. I mean, we see this from the very beginning in, in Genesis during the temptation of Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2.16, God told Adam, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Sounds pretty cut and dry, doesn't it? But in the very next chapter, verse 2, Satan in the form of a serpent twists what God has said and exaggerates the command, making it look ridiculous. He says, Did God really say that? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? <laughs> he, he completely distorted what God had really said. You know, did God really say that? I, I don't think that's what he really meant. So seems a little ridiculous. And then Satan goes on to give his spin on the truth. And, and one of the first sins in the garden was calling into question what God had actually said and distorting the truth. If the Bible is the word of God, then it must be accepted as the word of God, which means to accept it with authority. We should never say, well, I know what the Bible says, but I know what the Bible says about lying, but, but surely this isn't hurting anyone. I, I know what the Bible says about loving your neighbor, but man, he, he sure gets on my nerves. I know what the Bible says about forgiveness, but... I know what it says about sharing my faith, but I I know what the Bible says about putting others before myself, but you see, these new followers of Jesus didn't say, well, well, this is just Paul's opinion. You know, he, he gets a little carried away sometimes. They didn't say that. They didn't try to redefine what Paul was saying in order to, to fit it neatly into their preferred way of life. Instead, they said, this is the very word of God. We're not going to change it. We're not going to modify it. We're not going to adapt it to to fit our way of thinking. We're not going to cut out the stuff we don't like. No, we're going to accept it as it is, 
even the tough stuff. We're going to let God do something powerful in our lives and in our city. And we know from chapter 1, verse 5, this is exactly what happened. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. The Thessalonians accepted God's word and it was transforming their lives. We can trust God's word to lead us. Because continuing in verse 3, we read, When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. In other words, it didn't just go in one ear and out the other. They believed it. They took it to heart. They put it into practice. It was changing their lives, rearranging their priorities, giving them direction, giving them hope. It's interesting, the word at work is is like our English word, energy. In other words, God's word is energized within us as we believe it. Sort of like a, a farmland that produces a big crop. You know, if you're, not, if you're not already, find someone or a group that you can encourage one another in this way. You can talk about the things that, that God says. But the question is, is, is the word of God within you changing you, energizing you? God's word is not just a, a self-help book that bring, uh, brings, <clears throat> but, it, but it brings life and change. And not only that, the word of God within us strengthens us from those against us. Here's why, why Paul knew God's work was, was at work within them. He says in verse 14, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God church, God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone. In their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, in this way they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. You see, one of the evidences that God's work continues to work within is the strength that followers of Jesus experience when difficulties come. The Thessalonians didn't bail. They stood strong in the face of opposition. They believed God's promises. And so these new believers endured and stood up under the same kind of suffering the churches in Judea were going through. You know, sometimes it's just helpful to know we're not alone. And Paul's reminding them of that. And the Jews that Paul's referring to are the people, for for the most part, who wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Uh, The Jewish leaders handed Jesus over to the Gentile authorities to have him crucified. But it's it's good for us to remember something at this point. As hurt as Paul was by the treatment that he received from these unbelieving Jews, he had a tender love for these people. In fact, we read in Romans chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Paul loved these people. However, because of of their opposition to Jesus and the church, Paul says they they displease God and are hostile to all men. They, They were trying to keep everyone from hearing the good news about Jesus, and because of this, 
he says they were heaping up their sin to the limit, which, which means to fill to the brim. God patiently waits as people continue to rebel against him. But a time will come when, when the time is up and he finds their lives are full of sin and rebellion. That he'll, he pours out his wrath against sin and rebellion. You see, Paul speaks here of God's eternal wrath in the, way, in the same way that, that John describes it in John chapter 3. In verse 18, he says, Whoever believes in him is, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Later on, verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. You see, the, the outcome is so certain, it's spoken of in the present reality. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. You see, the wrath of God is his holy response to human sin and disobedience. And the thing is, we would be in the same boat had Jesus not paid our debt for, this, for, for our sin on the cross and turned God's wrath against evil and sin from us. But instead, as followers of Jesus who have said yes to Jesus, who have turned our lives over to him, we're now a part of his family. In fact, Romans 5 gives us this good news, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, why we were still sinners, why we were still in rebellion against him. Christ died for us. He paid the price for us. And since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? You see, Paul's words would have given these new followers of Jesus perspective in the midst of hardship and persecution for their faith. The truth at work within them gave them the endurance to keep walking in the security of their faith. But there was another type of opposition that Paul's, Paul mentions in verse 18. He says, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. In light of this, we need to realize the struggle against us is not greater than the God who is for us. Paul's defending himself. Let me explain my situation. I've, I've tried to get back, but the enemy has hindered me. This is the first of three times that he'll mention Satan in this letter. But he says Satan has blocked our way, and, and Paul uses a word that, that refers to a military tactic of breaking up a road or, or placing a blockade so an army can't advance. In other words, Paul is saying Satan set up a barricade. He broke up the road, making it impossible for me to return. And by the way, what biblical proof that those orange barrels on 76... Our, our spiritual warfare. <laughs> you say, we don't know specifically what Satan did to keep Paul from going back to Thessalonica. It could have been opposition, it could have been legal difficulties or illness or travel complications, just to name a few things. But we do know that Paul attributed the blockade to Satan himself. But what we need to remember is that, that, is that Satan is real and he loves to attack our relationships. Especially those centered on Jesus, pointed, pointing others to Jesus. You see, if, if you're not walking with Jesus, he's, he's not going to bother. 
But Paul reminds us in Ephesians that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Is he saying that, that we have no struggle with cantankerous, selfish, sinful people? Absolutely not. But he is saying that behind the scenes, working, be, working through people and this world system are spiritual forces of evil. Satan will do everything he can to, to neutralize, to, to hinder, to, to, to distract and destroy us. You know, I believe COVID and our political landscape over the past year have provided a huge opportunity for this kind of thing. He will attempt to, to work from within the church to stir up trouble. He will, he will work through religious people. He will work through the general philosophies and ideas and causes of the world. He will work through politics and economics and government, even the workplace. But there's an incredible truth here in 1 Thessalonians. While, while Paul was hindered from returning, he continued to have a ministry and to teach the word. He, he remained useful. He wasn't defeated because he knew that the Lord was, was in control. And though he had been hindered, the word was still working. You see, while Satan has the power to hinder and frustrate the work of God's people, he can only operate in the, conf in the confines of what God permits him to do. In other words, God allows him to obstruct our, our efforts at times, but God does not allow Satan to hinder his plans as a whole. And so Paul recognized that Satan was keeping him from going to Thessalonica, but he understood this was part of God's plan. God allowed it. There were actually some great things that came out of this roadblock. The Thessalonians were forced to rely on, on God, not Paul. Paul couldn't go, but the believers still grew. And they not only grew, but their story of turning to God, it says, rang out to the regions around them. Paul wrote a letter to them that, that we almost 2,000 years uh, later are, are reading and studying and learning. Literally, millions of churches over the past 2,000 years have benefited from reading and applying the books of First and Second Thessalonians. You see, Satan's strategy has always been to, to stir up problems, keep us, distract, keep us distracted from the mission, mission and message of the gospel. But it always backfires. I mean, we learned in Acts when severe persecution broke out against the church, it grew, it expanded. In this case, God uses this temporary separation to facilitate growth on both ends. You see, John writes, You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit who is in you, is greater than the one, Satan and his demons, who is in the world. And so remember, the struggle against us is not greater than the God who is for us. Paul also reminds us of a priority in our lives. The people we bring alongside us are the reward before us. Verse 17, but, the bro but brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. If you didn't catch it last week as Paul described their ministry as a, as a mother and father caring for and encouraging their children, you should hear 
Uh, here in verses 19 and 20, we get a glimpse of Paul's heart. I, I know growing up in church, I used to think Paul as some kind of cool, abrasive, intellectual curmudgeon. <laughs> but, but if you look closely at his story and watch how he served people, he loved people well. He invested himself in people's lives. He cared deeply. Paul planned to return to, to finish the job he started. However, because he had been delayed in his return, his opponents had begun to slander his character. Some of the new believers were beginning to question his motives. If, if he loved us, why did he leave us? And, and why doesn't he come back to see us? And even though Paul wasn't able to go back, he never really left them in his thoughts. This letter proves that. He thought about them all the time. He had a longing to be with them that he describes as intense. See, he knew the importance of relationships. You see, we need each other. We're called to live life together, to care deeply, to pray intensely, to, to laugh and cry together as we live in authentic biblical community with one another. You see, when we've been in a church for a while, I think sometimes we have a tendency to want our comfort over mission. We have a tendency to gravitate towards the same people every Sunday. We sit in the same spots and, and we say things like, ah, I'm not sure I'm going till I know who else is going. <laughs> now, I get that, but this is coming from, from someone who's more introverted than extroverted. <laughs> But here's what I suggest. Make yourself uncomfortable. Go anyway. Find a different seat. Get to know someone you've never met. Uh, rather than, than putting up barricades like the devil we talked about earlier, we need to be bridge builders. Uh, there's, always, there's always a few Oscar the Grouches, but, but for the most part, people want to be noticed. They want to be listened to. In fact, you might even find someone you like. <laughs> After commending their acceptance of, of God's word and their ability to endure hard times, after recognizing Satan's attempt to disrupt their relationships, Paul reminds them of the importance of people in their lives. In verse 19, it says, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. You see, when my, uh, my boys first started playing sports, uh, I signed up to help. I said, yeah, I'll help. I'll come alongside. More times than not, I, I ended up coaching the team. <laughs> uh, and that was a little scary for me, especially when I was asked to coach soccer. I knew nothing about soccer. I had never, had never played soccer uh, hadn't watched a whole lot of soccer, but I felt responsibility to teach them correctly. And so I, I had a guy from church I was pastoring. He had played in college and he took me out for a couple hours and he showed me the basics, how to kick the ball and that kind of thing. And, and then I went to a bookstore and I picked up soccer for dummies and I was learning on the fly. Well, I ended up coaching for about eight years and I actually, I loved it. But the thing that was probably my greatest joy was later on watching these same boys and girls grow in their skills and then play at the high school level. 
I felt the same way about a group I started at uh, the first church I was at. We were a group of young marrieds who had all moved to Philly. We had all moved away from our families. But man, what a joy it was to see those four guys take turns leading the group, sometimes reluctantly. (laughs) And then years later, after we'd all moved away and established new homes elsewhere, hearing how they were leading different ministries in the communities where they lived. So I understand to a small extent the pride that Paul felt for this young church. They were his hope because because he kept thinking about what God was going to do through them. They were his joy both now and in heaven. They were his crown. The, The word refers to a wreath of leaves given to the winner of a race. It was a crowning achievement, the the victor's prize, a a trophy of triumph. And he says, my reward, my, my trophy, my prize is the pleasure of seeing all these new followers of Jesus standing with him. John expressed the same thing when he wrote, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. In other words, not just in heaven, but right now, you are the most important thing in the world to us. We think about you night and day. We pray for you. We, we never stop telling others how proud we are of you. Paul measured his ministry by the spiritual blessings received by the people he served, not in the accumulation of things for himself. And so working while waiting involves investing in the lives of those with whom we'll spend eternity. That's our encouragement to keep moving forward even when the winds and the currents of the world oppose us. In other words, keep in the word. Accept it as the word of God, guiding, directing, strengthening, encouraging, and keep investing in people. I think today if we could ask Paul what really fired him up, if we could find out what kept him going when things were tough, his answer would be something like this. I will do anything I can to make sure that no one is left behind when Jesus returns. When I go to see Jesus, I want to share the joy with as many people as I possibly can. An old pastor put it this way. He says, only two things in this world are eternal, the word of God and people. It only makes sense to build your life around those things that will last forever. You see, the word of God will last forever. People last forever. Invest your time in these things. Remember when we have the enemies of God upon us and the adversary of God against us, we have the word of God within us, the people of God around us, and the reward before us. Don't give up. Lay hold of the word of God within you. I asked this a few weeks ago, but are you reading God's word? Are you letting it work in you? Not not as words of men, but God's word. Get into it. These are words of life. Lay hold of the people of God around you. Are you actively seeking to connect with people? Are you praying for your three? Lay hold of the reward of God before you. Are you anticipating a day you will worship beside those who have said yes to Jesus as a result of the seed planted in their hearts through your prayers, your life, and your words? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the people that you place into our lives. Father, help us to love people well 
to love them as, as you have loved them. For you demonstrated your love for us in that why we were still sinners, why we were still in rebellion against you, Christ died for us so that we could be at peace with you, so that we might find life in you and purpose. Father, that we might be called children of God. Father, thank you for that reality. I think, pray that, that we would share that reality with the people in our lives around us. And Lord, that we would be in your word to, to not just know about you, but to truly know you as you really are. And to know that your word is, is not just a, the failed thinking of a bunch of, of guys writing a long time ago. But Lord, we would read your word as coming, coming from the mind, coming from the mouth of our creator God, our living God our Heavenly Father. And Father, help us to read your word in that way, that it might work actively and, and energize us inwardly. Lord, uh, just thank you for Paul's example here. Thank you for his love for your word, his love for people. And Lord, I, just, uh, I pray as we go out today that we would celebrate our dads well and that uh, we would give them uh, tell them how proud we are and, and love them, love them well. Lord, we just give all this to you in Jesus' name, amen.